0: Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. My name is uh, Dennis Ockholm, um, and uh, I, I was here once before. Um, got to preach on the wedding at Cana about lots of wine. And um, uh, it's nice to be back with you all. I teach full-time at Azusa Pacific University, but I also, uh, where I'm called Doc Ock, so if you want to refer to me that way, that's fine. Um, I'm also um, uh, a priest uh, who helps out at Holy Trinity Church in Costa Mesa. We just um, um, brought in a new rector, and we're excited about that. But I'm glad to be with you all for about five of these uh, next six uh, weeks. And, uh, And I hope you'll forgive me if I... Uh, mess up once in a while. I'm trying to uh, do the right thing for everyone, so there's no surprises, and I've got a lot of help. Um, I'm pretty sure I know why Father Scott chose to take his sabbatical during this time. I think he looked ahead at the lectionary and wisely decided that he didn't want to deal with this Sunday's gospel lesson. (laughs) Now, he'd have confirmation from a German Lutheran theologian of last century by the name of Helmut Thielicke, who began his reflections on this parable with these words. If you were to go to the trouble of reading a large number of sermons which have been preached on this text, you would make a remarkable discovery. These sermons not infrequently begin with the preacher's lament about how difficult and embarrassing this text is, and that here the congregation is presented with a rather nasty case of corruption. The preacher implies that it will be a hard and delicate thing to avoid the difficulty and to edify the hearers on the basis of such a story. But since this criminal record has a place in the New Testament, there must be something in it, and we must never stop looking for the spiritual light in this rather obscure story. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself, and it's exactly the way I felt uh, as I worked through this text. And and this is the most difficult parable to understand in Jesus' repertoire of parables. But, but parables, as my wife tells the children when she teaches godly play, are, they're like gifts in golden boxes that God gives to us. They're precious like gold. But like any gift, we need to take the lid off, open them up, and explore before the gift can be truly ours. So is there really a gift inside this parable? What is Jesus trying to tell us? Well, to answer that, we need to understand that Jesus is not telling us to go out and rip off or cheat on our employer. He's not lifting up the unjust steward as a role model for uh, something we should emulate. Uh, Many times in Jesus's parables, uh, he uses human examples to make a contrasting point. I mean, you remember that parable of the woman who implores a judge uh, whom she has to badger until she gets justice? Jesus isn't saying that God is like that judge, that you have to keep pestering God until God finally does something. Jesus was saying that God is better than that. God's response to our human cries for justice are not like that reluctant human response. So Jesus was contrasting God to that unresponsive judge in that parable. As Jesus often puts it, how much more is God? Or how much more should you and I be? Now there's something like that that's going on in this parable. In the gospel text, Jesus is saying, how much more or how much better are children of light than in the use of this wicked thing that is called money, than are the children of darkness. In the parable, you see, the steward cooked the books so that people would befriend him and welcome him. He cheated his employer out of some money, but he also made it impossible for the employer to get the lost money from the debtors. Uh, Otherwise, he would be looking like a, a loan shark. Yeah, it, it may even be the case that this conniving steward figured that those indebted to his employer will now embrace the employer as a generous man who has now reduced their indebtedness. I mean, this guy's really clever. Uh, he's really thought this thing through. He cooks the books in order to be welcomed by the debtors, and then he makes his boss look so good in the process that he figures the bro- boss isn't going to press any charges against the guy that he just fired. Again, Jesus, look, Jesus is not telling us to cook the books or swindle people. But he is telling us how much more his followers are to be in the use of their possessions and their wealth, not to serve mammon, but to serve their employer, their master, God. His followers are to get busy using their imaginations, their cleverness, their resources, so that those to whom they they minister will welcome the generosity, will welcome the extravagant, forgiving love of God, who does forgive our debts. I mean, there will come a day when we stand before God, this time without our possessions and the wealth that Jesus wants us to use for the sake of others. I know that we'll be in that situation because I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I once did hear of a man who was buried in his Cadillac, but I'm guessing that was an exception. But, But on that day, when it comes, the question is, who will testify for us? Who will testify for us? Because what Jesus said in verse 13 of today's gospel lesson, he also said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's gospel, where he made the same point that we cannot serve God and money. Instead, he commanded us to lay up our treasures in heaven, to make sure our investments land in God's domain. And think about this. If we can't take the U-Haul with us, what are those treasures that we are going to take with us into God's realm. It seems to me that the only treasures you and I will be able to take with us are the investments that we make in the lives of other people. You can take that with you. So on that day, we might hear someone say, he saw me hungry and he gave me his meal. She put me on my feet again. When I was a refugee, he was an advocate for me when I was a prisoner. She sewed me a shirt when I didn't have one. I mean, certainly that image of, of a day of reckoning shouts to us from the book of Amos that we heard read. And on that day declares the Lord God, the prophet speaks God's word to people who are exploiting the weak and the unfortunate. Who were oppressing the poor in the social structure that had arisen in the days of King Jeroboam? Amos was saying that what had ap- what appeared to be progress and good business to the merchants—you heard it—making the ephah small and the shekel great, and, and dealing deceitfully with false balances. In other words, cooking the books, and buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and selling chaff. The chaff of the wheat, not the wheat itself. All of this appeared to be shrewd business. But it was actually disobedience of the covenant that Yahweh had made with his people. They were religious, as we heard in the text, worshiping on the new moon and on the Sabbath as good Israelites did. They observed the holy days. They met their liturgical obligations but it was a pretense for the life they were really living on the other days. The business that they were impatient to get to after the unwelcome interruptions caused by their religious observances. And the scary thing is that through the prophet Amos, God doesn't say he's going to get even. God just says he's going to get out. The text says that the day is coming when Yahweh will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They will look for it everywhere, but they shall not find it. God will be silent. And there's nothing worse for society than for God to abandon us to our own sins. The Apostle Paul says three times in Romans 1 that God's wrath in response to human sin is simply that God gives us up to our sins. That's his judgment. When God gets out of our lives, when God goes silent, humans find themselves in the worst plight. That's Amos. And then back to Jesus' parable, the contrast then Jesus is making is that if an unjust steward can use unrighteous mammon to release people of debt and to make them his new friends, how much more are we to get busy using our resources, our gifts, our talents, our skills, our time, our money that God has given us to serve him, to visit the prisoner, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, I hang around monks in person and in books. I've been doing it for several decades now. And one of my favorites is a Cistercian named Michael Casey. I've been reading his daily entries in a book that he entitled Balaam's Donkey. (laughs) Yeah, great title for a book. And in one of the entries uh, that I was reading a couple weeks ago called Omission, he wrote this. If I were to ask you to draw up a list of the world's greatest sinners, I wonder who would be on it. Hitler, maybe, Stalin, pedophiles, drunks, venal politicians, drug lords, and so on. Such sinners are important to us because in comparison with them, we feel ourselves to be relatively blameless. (laughs) Thank God I'm not like the rest of humanity. Then he continues, though. Imagine a man sitting back in an armchair, boozily watching a football game. An angel comes down from heaven and announces, you're off to hell. The poor guy replies, you got the wrong man. I didn't do anything. The angel replies, that's why you're going there. You never did anything. (laughs) You see, Jesus made the same point, right? He made the same point about sheep and goats on judgment day in the gospel of Matthew. He made the same point about two religious leaders in contrast to a Samaritan along a dangerous highway. And now he makes the point in our gospel lesson about the steward of another's money. I mean, as I worked through this difficult passage this week, I began thinking of a friend of ours whom Jesus, I think, would have used to make his point. Jerry lives on Orcas Island in Washington State. And he would actually tell you that he has mishandled Uh, The unrighteous mammon that Jesus often spoke of. He has mishandled it to the point that he was found guilty of a white-collar crime uh, years ago and found himself doing a stint in prison. Now he's in his 80s, and Jerry has been unsuccessful in getting me to move up there to start an Anglican church on the island. But that's the minor concern that he has, compared to what he has been up to. For several years now, he's been very active in prison ministry. He especially advocates for the release of a prisoner that our legal system has put away for life, Scott. Scott was the drug kingpin, the worst prisoner, when he first entered prison uh, years ago, years and years ago. But especially through the witness of his daughter, who turned her life over to the Lord Jesus Christ at a Christian camp, which a church paid for her to attend. Scott, his life has turned around 180 degrees. He's now deeply committed to Jesus Christ. Recently, he's been assigned to minister to the mentally ill and disabled in his prison cell block. And he's been known to get very upset with chaplains who are not sufficiently doing their ministry. He's actually written that in some of the letters to us. We're all hoping that eventually Scott can be released. But for now, he believes that God has placed him where he is so that he can have a ministry to other prisoners. And so Jerry is trying to help Scott get out of prison. But wait, there's more. (laughs) Because while Scott and other prisoners have a dedicated advocate in Jerry, his greatest project lately His biggest project has been the successful start of a halfway house for released prisoners who want to restart their lives. Jerry is not that guy, boozily, sitting in his armchair like a spectator. Here he is with his imagination and his motivation for God's kingdom. He and the first residents of the house are already making repairs on this house. And he got Lowe's to donate material for the work. He's finding construction type employment for the men. He's trying to find a location for a coffee house that will produce income for the ministry that he began. That's called Micah Eight. You see, Jerry is the righteous steward, the righteous steward of mammon that once got him in trouble. But he now uses it as God's resource for others whom Jerry wants to become the friends of Jesus who will welcome Jesus into their lives. It's an amazing thing that he makes me tired, and he's in his 80s. And I think on a day such as Amos speaks of, a day that's coming, I'm certain that when Jerry is asked, who will testify for you, Scott and many other men and women, treasures he has invested in heaven, will be at his side shouting, we will, we will. Sisters and brothers, you and I are stewards of another's gifts, of God's resources with which he has provided us to be his cooperative friends doing his ministries in the world world so that others can be welcomed into his kingdom. And let's face it, we don't always do that well. And that's why later we're going to pray the prayer of confession and we will say in first-person plural, we as church confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by by what we as your church have not done. But then we're going to hear the words of God's grace and we're going to taste and drink his goodness that by his spirit will once again equip us as we are sent back into the world from which we were gathered this morning. And may he who by the power at work within us this coming week do much more, much more than all we could ever imagine or think. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus now and forever. Yes, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.